Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Steve Ubaney, and he published a book titled Who Murdered Diana? May 2021. Excellent book. I read through it uh, this morning and learned a lot more about the suspicious death of Princess Diana. And uh, this is not his first book. He also published Who Murdered FDR? Who Murdered Elvis? And also will have a new book coming out in 2024 titled Who Murdered Tesla? And his website is www.whomurderedbooks.com. And again, we're going to talk about this book. If you're watching on YouTube, title is Who Murdered Diana? So Steve Ubaney, welcome to the show. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. Awesome. So for people who may not have heard your name or your books, can you kind of, you definitely have a theme. Can you talk about your background and what made you interested in telling these particular stories? Uh, yeah, there are things that you're taught throughout college in, in history class and this and that, that you have to give the right answer to just to pass the class. But some of the things I just never believed, um, a lot of that, and there's little holes that I poke through history. I don't really call myself a conspiracy theorist. I'm more of a history detective. Um, took a lot of history in college. I've got four degrees, um, that spanned uh, multiple decades. So I'm a person who I'm inquisitive about a lot of subjects and the people that I have investigated are just the ones that I thought are the most blatant that I could write about. There's a lot of other things in history that I let go. Um, but there's, there's some other presidential murders in there that uh, I think should be looked at. Um, Warren Harding, for example, that I'm not going to write about. But these are the ones that I thought were the most obvious that I could write about. And I found some new information on all of them. So that's, that's what yeah. brought me to this. You know, brought you uh, around. You started out with Elvis, right? Who murdered Elvis? Oh, yeah. And a lot of people don't know because Elvis had, uh, Elvis had the Memphis Mafia, which was his inner group of guys who I ended up knowing almost all of them. Um, and, you know, what nothing got out from Elvis, nothing got into Elvis. Found with how his manager had all kinds of mob ties, and Elvis, of course, went into helping the FBI, helping Nixon and the FBI. This was not going to end well at all, not even close. And Elvis died very mysteriously uh, a few days before he was supposed to turn state's evidence against the mob. So that was the first one. And that was about 10 years of digging on that one. I ended up talking to uh, people who were at the autopsy, uh, ended up being friends with a couple of them. And, you know, we're at that point in life now where these people, a lot of them are dead now. You know, it's, it's sad. They've lived their full lives and they're gone. But um, I like to go source direct if I can. I don't like right. to, uh, you know, I don't like to get secondhand information. You know, that's like yesterday's toast, you know. Right. <laughs> I like to go source direct, so. Uh, and after after I did the Elvis books, um, I did one on FDR, which I found some new information where his cousin put in a diary that he was murdered. And, you know, when, when a big event happens like this, where like Diana dies or Elvis dies or FDR dies or something like that, everyone is scrambling for information and it's all tightly held. Nothing's out there. But as decades roll on and... It, and documents get declassified and other information comes out. You might have a deathbed confession. You can go back in 
when no one's looking, I'm still looking, uh, you can go back in and you can piece together exactly what happened. And in all of my books, they're all laid out the same way. Um, I have a backdrop of the person and I gather the suspects and I run them through the elements of a crime. Motive means an opportunity. And in the end, I let, I let the evidence write the book. It's almost like the sculptor who just takes away the extra pieces so you can see the see the sculptor, the sculpture. Right. I'm kind of the same way. I just take away the fluff so real evidence can be shown. Right. And how, so how did very, you... Go ahead. Very, they're very interesting books. They're cross-genre, actually. Um, there's true, true crime and history and celebrity and suspense and mystery. It's all kind of wrapped up in there. No, very much so. The book that I read, Diana, has a lot of her history. You talk about the background of her and Charles, Prince Charles, and the royals, and what she got herself into. A lot of that stuff I wasn't fully aware of or cognizant of. Can you kind of talk about how you started your investigation into who murdered Diana? Well, I all ha I had to self-publish all of these books. No one was going to publish these books, and it's not because they're not worthy of being published. It's because... The major publishing houses are owned by the same media conglomerates who have been lying to you about these people's deaths for ages. Right. So it's not in their best interest to publish someone like me who comes around and, you know, and puts that out there. How I went about this was, um, like I said, gathering as much evidence as I could, uh, things that people know, things that people don't know, and, and just looking in different places. And I was, this book is really interesting, the Diana book, because... My 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 manuscript was done. I was all done. It was all done. And I made a huge mistake, which I'll never do again. I put on social media. My next book is on Princess Diana. We'll be up, 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 up. Someone got a hold of me and saw it and got a hold of me from France. Their mother died. She's been investigating Princess Diana for you know 10 years. And they said, do you want the information? And I'm like, oh, man, do I really want to do this? So I said, yeah, sure, send it along. And I'm thinking, yeah, this is this is probably a nothing burger. So I get it in the mail, and it's loaded with information and pictures that no one had. So I got back. I tried to go back to him and tell him that I got this information, and who do I credit this with? And, you know, I try to you know, cite my sources. They were They were gone. The user was disappeared, which was really bizarre. So... I have information in my book that I don't think anybody in the world has. Um, I actually have pictures in there of people who were in the crowd who were suspicious, who uh, I think were involved in uh, in what happened. So um, there's a lot a lot of information as to why this book is unique from the others. Right, and you have those two pictures. There was all kinds of strange events, but who was Princess Diana, and why did she become? a part of the royal she was really royalty in england right yeah she's a fascinating person in in history i have to move through, there's a lot of data here so i have to move quick um take your time it's, it's kind of take time talking about the background because then people can take yeah. that next step and go get your book or audiobook yeah princess diana was a real interesting interesting figure in history if you go all the way back to like 1327 edward the 3rd king edward um, like I did because I'm a geek and I have to research things. You know, that's what I do. Um, Princess Diana and Prince Charles were cousins. 
So she would grow up to marry her cousin, which is kind of weird, like Roosevelt. You know, this is what this was commonly done in royal bloodlines. And it can be argued that her bloodline was actually more royal than the royal families. So she comes up, uh, the, the big misnomer that everybody says that, you know, she was a commoner and this and that, which is why everybody was so intrigued by this, this woman and, you know, the fairy tale princess. She was not a commoner, not even close. Her, um, her father was the eighth Earl of Spencer. I mean, she was a Spencer. You can't get any more royal in England than the Spencers, you know? Right, that's her main so name. She, I mean, the royal family and the Spencers had known each other for generations. So it just so happened that when she came into being in the media, that she was, uh, you know, she was doing menial jobs because, you know, her mother had bought her a flat in london and of course that's when she started courting charles so she came into the media eye be doing common things but she was by no means a commoner so um there was a lot of psychological damage that was done to this poor woman when she was a child she uh of course they all want uh, uh boys to carry on the family name okay they carry on their monarchy or their lineage or whatever and the year before she was born, the family had lost uh, had lost a boy. They lost they had a stillborn son. So when she came along a year later and she was a girl, she was completely unwanted. And they threw it up in her face when she was growing up. I can't imagine why anyone would put any little girl through this mental abuse. Uh, that's just unspeakable. But she grew up in that atmosphere and she had that in the back in the back of her head that you know i've done something wrong because i'm not a boy really bizarre so the family split um they have a divorce and uh, the mother went her own way and her father was a really nice man who had the means to care for the children um at age nine she goes off to special schools you know to begin her education and she went from various different schools finishing school included and she was just not a student <laughs> she just was not a good student and she ended up failing out and doing this and doing that and um, she finally ended up where we first saw her in you know doing common jobs so that's the background on her um she was the student she was the kind of the sibling in that family who wanted to take care of all the other ones because the divorce was not a good one. Divorce never is. So that's the backdrop of her. And that unwantedness emotionally is what was her downfall with her marriage. She gets, so she's growing up and she goes to Prince Charles was actually dating her sister, Sarah which is a bizarre twist. So not only are these people cousins, I mean, this is, you can't make this up, right? So he's dating Sarah, who either said something wrong in the media or the media took it and ran with it. And it tweaked the queen's nose a little bit. And Sarah was history quick. So here's Charles at 30 years old. And of course we have to have boys, right? Because that's what we do to carry on the monarchy. So there's a lot of enormous pressure on, on Prince Charles to sire children and keep this monarchy going. So he's at 30 years old, and the Spencers, the Spencer girls were perfect marrying material for royalty. 
They were raised right. They were all virgins. Um, they were familiar to the royal family. So I believe the queen picked Diana. And of course, you know, they knew each other well, which certainly helps. And um, of course, the courtship started. So when they married, uh, he was 32, she was 20. So she's still kind of a naive little creature here. And she's got this scar tissue in the back of her brain about being unwanted her whole life. So she's just blowing off her feet. Wow. You know, here's this, you know, I'm going to next in line for queen. You know, she just fell hook, line and sinker in this, you know, this was the, the Disney wedding, the, you know, the fairy tale wedding that uh, every little girl wants, you know? Um, and right. And it, she looked apart. I mean, she had the, I, I kind of feel like she outclassed Charles a lot in looks and her demeanor. And I think it started right there. But Charles was still with this Parker Bowles woman, right? A lot of people may not know that that relationship preceded his relationship with Diana, right? Oh, yeah. There was a, a woman in, in Charles' life. He didn't care if he was married or not because he was involved with Camilla Parker Bowles, who he's married to now. Um, and they started in 1971. You know, they started their relationship behind her husband's back. And uh, the queen had a fit. The queen had a fit about this. And she she knew about it. And she tried to break. She did everything to, to break these two up. Um, she even sent him off to the military so they could get, you know, they could be away from each other. And, of course, when he came back from the military, you know, it didn't work very well. They just... Uh, Made it for lost time. So here's Diana, right? 20 years old. Fantastic wedding and all these plans. And Charles is only half, he's, you know, half in this. You know, right. she's whole hog. He's still emotionally invested elsewhere. So there's a lot of royal crotch swapping going on. And I know there's no better way to put that, but that's what's going on. So. And she knew it. Know, so Diana knows that he is two-timing her. And and Parker Bowles lets Diana know, right? So she kind of—I think that she enjoyed tweaking Diana's nose. Yeah, but it didn't—it didn't happen. It didn't happen at first. It happened a little further down the road, you know. So you know they're they're engaged in uh, in February of eighty-one, and they're married in uh, in July of uh, July of eighty-one, and it was a fantastic wedding, huge wedding. You know, I mean, it cost yeah, it was twenty-four by million like billions dollars. of people, right? Yeah. Yes, uh, 50 countries, 750 million people. I and mean, this is quite a wedding. So she, um, well, we know what happened. I mean, they got divorced. She had, they had two, you know, two wonderful boys and they ended up, she ended up getting divorced and she had a slew of, um, uh, of boyfriends here and there. And I won't go into that. It's covered in the book. And, um, it got to the point where, I don't care what kind of government you run. It doesn't matter to me if you're communist or what you are. You want complacent people. You don't want uprisings. It's not in any government's best interest. And when this split was going on between Diana and Charles, the tabloids were having a field day in England and around the world as well. But in England specifically, um, there were people taking sides. And this was not good for the royal family. So the queen finally had had enough. I mean, the Royal family only does a handful of things. Um, they keep the monarchy going with boys. They appear ceremoniously as dignitaries. 
and you know they keep themselves to a chokingly high standard and they stay away from people that's the, the three or four things that they do well you can't maintain this stature in the world and have this chokingly high standard of conduct when all of this is going on in the media so the queen gets involved and said that's it you guys are going to divorce i think it's the first time in history it's ever happened so they have rules. They have very, very old rules that they run their monarchy by. And this they were not going to let this black eye happen. So they divorce. Diana goes through a period where she's extraordinarily depressed, um, tries to kill herself. All of this came out later um, through multiple authors. A lot of great researchers before me came into this. The reason my book is different is because I'm the only american researcher in this i don't look at it through the lens of the royal family so my research is so she's trying to reinvent herself she goes to this period where she hates herself and wonder and um she's trying to reinvent uh, reinvent herself using causes and the first cause that she got involved in was the uh, ran contrary to the interests of the pharmaceutical industry. Okay, um, AIDS is the big thing, and she's trying to raise awareness for this AIDS cause, and she she's trying to be kind of like a supermodel slash Mother Teresa for the whole world, right? Which is a lofty ambition. Uh, she did a pretty good job of it. Ended up costing her life, but. This is the first suspect that I entered in was the pharmaceutical industry, and here's why. They're trying very, very hard at this point in time to come up with a vaccine that they could sell to multiple countries. And if you want to sell a vaccine, you have to have fear. That's a tremendous component in selling a vaccine. You have It has to be worthy of buying, okay? So at the time, the common, the common thought was, you can't touch AIDS patients. You can't do this. You can't do that. You know, we have to have this vaccine and these medications and so forth. Well, here she is going around the world holding babies who have AIDS and having physical contact with AIDS patients. And, of course, this was a different time. We know different about this now, but we didn't then. So here she is um, actually undoing the pharmaceutical industry's bidding. They're trying to promote the fear so they get the vaccine out and everything. And she's running around running contrary to their to their wishes. So she's costing them millions and millions of dollars. Uh, and they were not her friend. So the first suspect I entered in the book was a pharmaceutical industry. Okay. So she realizes from here, you know, uh, I'm starting to get some threats. She's been getting death threats for years. And um, she's going to uh, latch on to another, another cause. And this was um, a landmine ban around the world. She just couldn't believe that after these countries were at war, their landmines are still in the ground, and these people are just tootling upon these things and getting blown up, which is kind of horrible. I can't, I can't disagree with her. So she attaches herself to this cause, and... Uh, it's officially called the ICBL, the International Campaign to Ban Landmines. And it's, it's grabbing a lot of attention. So she's going around the world. Um, <laughs> I'm seeing people are chiming in here. It's kind of funny. 
Um, right, but she's so, going around, but very prominently, right? So she, her yeah, she public relations, she's very high. And I think you point out in your book, she was really an influencer before they had that term of on the internet. Like she was really a mega influencer. She was it. She could act, she, she could manipulate the media like no person in the world could manipulate the media. And it was a double-edged sword. She could, whatever she wanted, whatever causes she wanted to do, she could snap her fingers and have global media attention. The problem was she couldn't turn it off. So they would show up at times where they didn't want, she didn't, you know, want them. So July of 96, she's on this anti-landmine campaign and hard too. So she's going to Angola and she's, of course, she's got full media coverage there because she wants this ban. And, um, you know, there's a lot of countries on board with this and she's going to spearhead this. So she's show, she's seen with, um, you know, people who are missing arms and legs and it was really gut wrenching that this could happen. So here she starts getting real threats and this didn't come out. We didn't know this came out afterwards. There's a man named Alan McGregor who's out there who I tried to interview as hard as a person could try, I hired three private detectives to find this guy so I could interview him, and I couldn't find him. He was in charge of her security when she traveled abroad, and she got threatened to the point where they had to, they had to pay a hundred million pounds dollars to us, and uh, just to you know keep them from attacking her and taking her hostage and killing her in Angola. So there are real threats here. Um. So, right. I think you said in your book, like the six months before she died, what was the actual date of her death was 31st of August, 1997, the six months they were talking about potential assassination of her. So it was on the minds of people surrounding Diana, including her. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It was. So she goes into now, this is, this, this is Angola and now we're into August and she's in Bosnia. And she, or yeah, she's in Bosnia, uh, August 18th. And she's doing the same thing. You know, she's out there creating this big media stir, and it's running contrary to uh, the international arms brokers. You know, look, we need to come to the realization of the fact that there are bad people in this world. Most of us wouldn't harm a fly, but there are bad people out there. And there are countries on this planet whose entire gross national product revolves around the, sa on the sale of arms legally or illegally. So she doesn't really understand that She's trying to get this arms, uh, this, uh, there was a small arms ban coming after the anti-landmine campaign. So, I mean, she had a hundred countries involved in this thing, uh, in June of 97, this was a serious thing. She doesn't really fully understand that she's upsetting the balance of the monetary system and power in the world, because this is, this is now global finance involved in these arms brokers. So this is the second, uh, the second people who I entered in for suspects were international arms brokers. So they were not her friend. What's so special about the information I got from France is uh, at the Bilderberg conference that year, uh, it was the 45th conference of the Bilderbergers on the 12th through the 15th of June. One of the people who was at the Bilderberg meeting actually gave, they overheard Two, uh, three people involved in a conversation planning her death. 
and it gives all of the detail of who was involved and what they said and everything. And, you know, uh, lo and behold, it was uh, just, <laughs> it was, what, 40 days afterwards that she was dead, you know? Right. Yeah, so it's incredible. One, like, huge industrialists and things like that, yeah. People yeah, absolutely. So, so the, the suspects that I gathered were um, the pharmaceutical companies, the international arms brokers. Of course, the royal family was in there. Um, the paparazzi was in there because I'll cover that in a second. And I have to move quick because I'm... I'm this is a lot of information, and it's kind of a shorter show. So um, there are two jilded lovers that were in there. Um, Hasnet Khan, who was uh, her Mr. Wonderful, a guy that she just absolutely loved, who parted ways before she ended up with Dodi Alfied. Uh, he was kind of a jilted lover. And Dodi Alfied, of course, the boyfriend that she had when she died, um, he broke it off with an American model, Kelly Fisher. So all of these people either have the opportunity to kill. So the suspects involved are the royal family, the paparazzi, Kelly Fisher, Hasnick Khan, international arms brokers, and the pharmaceutical industry. So in 200 pages, I will lay out all of this information, and I'll break down who did it. Okay, so um, let's, Dodie Elfian is interesting to come across. She starts, they were together exactly four weeks. This romance lasted four weeks. Well, it's nothing, yeah. And, you know, they, they meet in Paris, you know, July of 96. And again, the Elfieds had known the Spencers for generations. Um, as a matter of fact, his father is uh, Mohammed Elfied, Dodi's father, is an Egyptian billionaire who owned, he owns the uh, Hotel Ritz in Paris. He owned Harrods Department Store. He was a longtime friend of Diana's father. So after, after he died, the, you know, her father died, um, Mohammed Elfied used to check in on the family. He actually went on to employ a couple of her family members. So like I said, England's only so big and if you are in the upper crust of wealth or something, you're going to know each other. So these people all know each other. Dodie and uh, Diana had known each other since the 80s. So now they're starting, uh, you know, a little bit of a different, different relationship. So I know there's been a lot said out there that she had a baby bump and she was pregnant with Dodie's child and this and that and the other thing, and they were getting engaged. Um, somebody, just asked that. somebody just asked that in the chat. Was she pregnant when she died? But she only knew him for four oh. weeks. Yeah, and they were saying that, you know, she had a baby bump and this and that and the other thing. If she was pregnant, and I said if, because I found no evidence to it. It might have been. Um, at four weeks, you're not having a baby bump. You know, that baby would be the size of uh, maybe a poppy seed. You know, it would have been impossible for her to be showing a baby bump at, at four weeks. Now, she might have been pregnant with someone else's kid. I don't know. But it couldn't have been. It couldn't have been what they were saying. So big media storm. Okay, so here you have the most photographed and probably at the time the most famous woman on the planet. And people who were not of, you know, I'm 56, okay? I remember this. A lot of people who were younger, they don't understand that this was a time before social media, a time before, almost before the internet it was, you know, was a big thing. Right. Tabloids and what you saw on television was everything and you had a lot of attention on one woman she was it so 
she starts this involvement with Dodie Alfied, okay, who's a global playboy. Of course, his father's a billionaire, and he's a Hollywood film producer, and he had Chariots of Fire and Hook and Scarlet Letter and Breaking Glass, and he's also his father's right-hand man at the Ritz, the hotel in Paris. And he basically just travels the world playing with his, with his girls, and that's it. Until Diana comes along. Now, all of a sudden, everything changes. So he ends up dumping Kelly Fisher, the model, to be with Diana. So apparently, so the story goes, he's going to propose marriage, marriage to her. I don't know if that's true. It may be. I don't know. Okay. People say a lot of things. And a lot of red herrings are thrown into the story just so right. it can be unsolvable, right. right? So they did that a lot with, well, I'm not going to get into it. I'll explain that a little bit later on if I have time. I laid it out in the book, yes? The red yeah, herrings? Yes. Oh, there's tons, yeah. The Paget report, yeah. all kinds of things are going on. Right. I mean, you can't you can't make this up. So, so they decide to go to Paris. Um, Diana's favorite place. She loved Paris. So they're on the boat. They land. The, the uh, Alfieds are very famous people, very rich people. They have their own security. Okay. So not only do they have security at the Ritz, who handled the security at the hotel, they had their own personal security for Dodie and the family. So their personal security, you know, they get in the limousines, you know, of course, and they're big protected limousines with blacked out windows, and they go to the Ritz which they have been to often. They, they had the Imperial suite there and they hang out there quite a bit. Why not? You know, I mean, hell, if I own the Ritz, I'd be there all the time too, you know? So they get to the Ritz and here's where fact and fiction kind of, I'll give you that. First of all, I'll give you the Easter bunny story and then I'll give you the real story. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Okay. So he wants to take her to, um, Chesbonnet, which was her favorite restaurant in Paris. So they have an, a, a quarter to ten, they have an appointment. Uh, a, a dinner reservation. So he goes, this is according to legend and lore. Okay, He goes to get the ring and he's going to pop the question at this restaurant. Um, the security team goes ahead just to make sure everything's okay. And um, it's too crowded there. He's not going to be able to be alone with her. This is not the right setting. So they decide to come back to the Ritz. Okay. So they go to the Ritz. They go back to the, uh, the suite upstairs, the, um, the Imperial suite. And they decide it's too crowded there. So they're going to go to Dodie's apartment, which is across town. So they have to sneak out the back way because the paparazzi is harassing them. And the paparazzi get behind the car and they're interfering with the driver and they cause him to spin out and hit the crash and she dies and, End of story. What a horrible car accident. accident. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that should be taken right out of the library, out of the history section, and put right next to Grimm's fairy tales. Because there's not even close to being true. Um, and, of course, the investigation was ridiculous. You know, I mean, I knew, I personally know someone who was in the tunnel who went to the French and said, hey, wait a minute, you know, uh, we witnessed this, we witnessed this, we witnessed this. None of it made it into the French dossier. None of it went from the French dossier to the Paget report, which was the investigation that the British government did. 
none of it was mentioned. I mean, it was almost the biggest damage control document in the history of mankind, second only to the to the Warren Commission report that it, it that it patterned itself after. Okay, so that's that's the BS story. Okay, what well, this is what really happened. They did want to go to Chesbonet that night. It is her favorite restaurant. And uh, they have people who go ahead in a security team to make sure everything works. There's no threats. There's no problem. And I've seen this firsthand. I was on Sanibel Island in Florida a couple years ago and reading at this restaurant. And here come these people with walkie-talkies looking around. I'm thinking, what is going on, you know? In walks in Mike Pence and his wife. I've seen this firsthand. You know, it was really bizarre to be there at that time. So this is their job to make sure that they're um, they're secure. So they go to the, uh, the restaurant and they're looking around and they're seeing things that don't make sense. They're seeing people, and this is this is August. I mean, it's hotter than hell in Paris right now. So they're seeing things that don't make sense. People in, in heavy coats and people with uh, knit wool hats on. And they're thinking, wait a minute, this is summer. Why would this be happening here? Something's wrong. It's almost like the JFK assassination where the, uh, where the guy opens the umbrella. Right. Doesn't fit. Something's wrong. Okay. So they said, you know, look, this is just not safe. We're going to have to go somewhere else. So reluctantly they had to go back to the Ritz and they went up to the Imperial suite. It wasn't because it was too crowded. It was because it wasn't safe. So they go back to the Imperial suite and the driver for them uh, is Henri Paul. Henri Paul is a very interesting figure in history. He is head of security at the Ritz and he is on the payroll for multiple um, agencies around the world. And they pay him for uh, intel. There's a lot of famous people do stay there. So they'll give him, you know, $10,000 or whatever. And he is leaking information on all of these famous people. And he's working for the CIA. He's working for MI6. He's working for multiple other agencies around the world who want information. He's an ear. Okay. So he's well known to these people. So they come back to the uh, to the Ritz, and they send him home. You know, look, we're going to stay here the rest of the night. And there's a phone call in my book that uh, Doty made to uh, his father. And his father said, look, it's so dangerous. Why did they think it was dangerous? Because they knew she was getting death threats. None of this has come out before. Okay? Right. So he says, it's so dangerous. Everything you need is right there. Just stay there. So they sent Henri Paul home. No reason to have a driver if they're not driving anyplace, right? Right. Well, Henri Paul gets contacted by MI6 and says, uh, we're seeing the same dangerous people now in the lobby at the Ritz that were at Ches Bonet. And I'm sorry, it wasn't MI6. It was the, the Doty's security team. It wasn't MI6. I misspoke. So they said, you've got to get her out of there. They could bomb the place. They could. They, God only knows what they're going to do. So the security team at the Ritz and the Alfied security team know the paparazzi well. They all know each other, and here's why. This isn't their first celebrity that to take pictures of. 
So what happens is the security team at the Ritz would tip off the paparazzis and say, hey, look, here, you're staying here. Um, you know, you can get a picture here. And they, of course, they take those pictures and they can sell this to, you know, any one of the tabloids around the world who are willing to pay it. That's what they do for a living. And right, then in huge return, numbers. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but they just had sold a picture of Fayed kissing Diana on a yacht for 300 quid or 300 uh, pounds, like incredible sums of money. So the demand, the right. intensity for people to take these pictures is very intense. Sure. Absolutely. And then what would happen is for the tip, they would give a kickback monetarily to the security team. So these people all know each other. All right. So here comes this situation with Diana and you know, we've been talking all this time. Should I tell people how to get the book? Absolutely. Wait? We're going to get there. No, wait, wait till the end. But just a couple, okay. couple more facts. The strange things around the accident. I mean, the setup was really something else because it's almost like they wanted to delay them. So they were driving when there would be the least amount of witnesses. Like, let's flush sure, them let's out at midnight, right? Here's what happens. So Henri Paul hatches this scheme. He's told that they've secured a route for her. For him to drive the princess and Dodie. Uh, and they said, look, take her out the back door and, you know, sneak her off in a car that no one would suspect she's in. And we'll secure a route for you so there won't be any traffic. There won't be anything there. And he said, OK, I can do it. So he goes and tells happen. So Henri and Dodie says, I don't know if I want to do this. You know, he said, how are we going to be? you know, assured that the paparazzi aren't going to see us. And he said, I'll take care of that. So what he did, pretty smart guy. He goes out the front door where all the paparazzis are and all of the Alfied limos are. And he says, um, they'll be out in about 15 minutes. Stick around. Okay. Well, now he's with the hotel security team. They, they know his word is his word because he's worked with them before. So 15 minutes come. They're not there. In 10 minutes, they were out the back door of the of the Ritz, uh, four of them. In um, Henri, um, Trevor Reese Jones, Henri Paul, the driver, in the back seat were Dodie and Diana. So they get about 50 feet down the road. Well, they don't have feet over there. They have meters or in the metric system. And they, and they had to have come to the realization, oh, my God, we've been set up. Because there are motorcycles called motorbikes over there, huge motorcycles, very powerful, all blacked out. These people are in, in uh, dressed in black, and they're surrounding the car. And because this limousine doesn't have tinted windows, they can see the princess, and they're trying to shoot her. They've got pistols. They're trying to knock her off. So the driver is just about out of his mind. He goes, oh my God, what am I going to do now? He, all, he he had to know he was set up. It was impossible not for him not to know. So they start racing through the streets of Paris. And of course, there's never been a car that's going to outrun a motorcycle. <laughs> I mean, the power to weight ratio is always on the bike, right? I mean, come on. Right. So they're going on this route and they go through 
they go through the first tunnel, which is on the Riverside Expressway, and witnesses, they're all in my book, I'm not going to name it, but five or six witnesses step forward and all tell the same thing. The same thing that was told to the authorities. They were surrounding the car. They were fiddling, they were trying to shoot the princess. They were trying to get this car to pull over so they could get her. There's a big price on her head. She's pissing off lots of people. So, and like I said before, the majority of people, you know, the majority of us are really nice people. 99.8% of us wouldn't bother a flea. But we have to come to the realization that there are people for hire, and this is what they do. So she's got a price on her head, and here we go. So he's trying very, Andre Paul's a driver, and he's trying desperately in his Mercedes S280 to outrun these motorcycles or, or swerve or do something, right? So they get to the first tunnel, and they get to the second tunnel, which is Pontiama Tunnel, and this is where the crash happens. So now what's happening is the motorcycles are in front of the car and they're slowing him down. He can't go anywhere. So here's this, of course, in legend and lore, this white Fiat Uno that uh, is meandering around the front of the tunnel. And they're saying that it just um, just happened to, you know, uh, side, sideswipe the, the limousine and it. Um, it spun out. It didn't just happen to sideswipe them. They did a pit maneuver. A pit maneuver has been done. They're doing it in law enforcement now for the last 20 years. It's been done in, in NASCAR for ages and ages. When two cars get side by side, all the one has to do is just clip the back quarter and the speed and the inertia spins the first car out. This is what they do in chases now. The police are doing this. This was, uh, they've been doing, I mean, liquor runners have been doing this in Prohibition for years, but now it's more widely known. Prior to this, and when the Diana's death, this was uh, only done by, by trained drivers. It w wasn't commonly known, but known then. So it's called a pit maneuver. So this is why this car was in this spot at this time. It was to get the car to spin out in the tunnel. Because that was their fail-safe when all else failed. First of all, they tried to kill her in the first tunnel with pistols. Couldn't get a shot. So now we're coming up to another tunnel. So now they're either going to shoot her in the tunnel or spin the car out. Well, what they did is they spun the car out to, uh, to a point where it hit the 13th pillar. And the car flew apart almost like a snap-together model, which is also something I put in this book. Right. So the motorcycles and everybody disappear in different directions. And here's this princess who's still alive, mind you. There right. was a, so Dodi Fayed died. Dodi Fayed died, and then Henri Paul died, and the bodyguard had on, serious injuries. Correct. Oh yeah, correct. The on impact, Henri Paul is dead, and uh, Dodi Fayed, who was sitting behind him, is dead. Very suspicious for a Mercedes-Benz who was crashed at a higher speed than, than they were traveling at when they hit that. And I'll come to that in a, in a minute. Um, so Diana, there, you know, I mean, Diana, there's a picture in my book, a real picture in my book of Diana, and it's black and white. Like I said, there's pictures in my book that I'm not going to find anywhere else. Um, there's a picture of her upright and grimacing in pain. She was alive, folks. I know there was another picture out there that she was dead in the car, and it's a color photograph. It's, it's, 
it was filmed somewhere, probably in a studio. It, it's just, it's bunk. It's fake. Yeah. But I have real pictures in my book of the people who were trying to kill her, who had the, who were in on the plot. Um, you know, with the uh, on closed circuit TV, there were snapshots of the people who uh, who were threatening her. So the crash happens. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna have time to go into the longest, uh, the two-hour, um, <laughs> two-hour ambulance ride. Right. You know, it took this woman. It took them two hours. Try and mo- bend your mind around this. And I know other authors have researched this, and they're fantastic. The other people who who have researched this. It took them two hours to get this woman the equivalent of four miles to a hospital. Right. And that's incredible when you stop and think about this. You know, I mean, there's pizza delivery people out there who guarantee a 30-minute delivery. She'd have been better off ordering a pizza and riding to the hospital with the driver. People are running the two-minute mile. I mean, this is this is beyond tolerance. This is beyond tolerance. So they were all in it together. I don't think that um, – I think there were a handful of people who were in on this. I think there are maybe three or four people. I don't think, and when people talk about conspiracies, not much of a conspiracy writer. I do run across them, and I know them when I see them. But I don't seek them out, but I do see them. But there's a uh, huge you know, cover-up. There's a huge cover-up in this whole story. I mean, they there's the Fiat driver shot in the head, the back of the head twice, burned to a crisp. There's all kinds of, immediately... There was information control where they were going after journalists and taking their, the French were taking their pictures and cameras and sure. deleting them. There, You said that that was happening in the UK. People had uh, black bag jobs. So there's a lot of uh, yeah. moving parts around her death. So you And you state that she had to die before September 19th. Like they were targeting her. She had to mm-hmm. go before the next landmine convention, right? Yeah, you're a little ahead of me in the story, but you're absolutely well, positive. I'm trying to wrap right. it up, and I just try to get to the point where we can ask you some questions, if you don't mind. I mean, there's a lot more in this oh, book. Sure, yeah. It's very de- detailed and laid out. Very de- I mean, there's all kinds of sure. suspicious stuff. Andre Paul had 50000 deposited in his bank, 22000 in his pocket when he died. I mean, just it's not normal. And the fact that there are two narratives and two stories is really telling. But do you mind taking a few questions, Steve? Uh, yeah, I just want to, can I, can you give me five minutes yeah, so I can wrap this up? Sure. Okay. So, um, they take, now the paparazzi have arrived on the scene. All right. Because they're about 10 minutes behind because their motorcycles are a little bit less powerful. So they show up at the same time the authorities show up and they put two and two together and come up with 147.50 and they take all of the paparazzi away and strip search them and take their film and this and that and the other thing. And they hold them 30 hours. And they realize there's no story here. These people couldn't have been here. They interviewed them separately and together, and all of their stories jive. They couldn't place them there. So, of course, the newspapers are running this out that the paparazzi were involved. They were not. They had to release them. So when they released them, they had to do, they had to take, they had to take a page out of the Warren Commission report and blame the dead guy. Without the toxicology report coming back on Henri Paul, without any, without, I mean, this is just so screwed up. It's almost hard to make this up. Without all of the information coming back at the toxicology report on Henri Paul, 
They released to the waiting media that he was drunk as a pig, and that's what caused it. Sound familiar? Lee Harvey Oswald. So that's the tale. Um, I this Mercedes, this Mercedes S280 had been stolen and stripped and put back together haphazardly. If this is the car they put the most famous woman in the world in. So I, I think I'll have to wrap there because we don't have time to go too much further. I'd love to take some questions. Well, it's a perfect time because people can get all those details that you add in the book and all of the cover-up and scandalous things that happened after she died. The letter she wrote that wasn't published. There's a lot more in this book. But let me ask you, let's get a couple of messages. Was, she, was Diana ever hospitalized for mental illness? I don't know. <clears throat> I'm sorry, say again, you broke up. Was was uh, Diana ever hospitalized for a mental illness? Not to my knowledge. She did have some problems. She did have some mental problems. It wouldn't surprise me was, but I didn't find anything. Possible. Sure. I mean, I, I do know that she was severely depressed and she tried to kill herself. And I know that she had all kinds of eating problems. But I don't know if she was ever hospitalized for a mental illness. You know, I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm just saying that I couldn't find any evidence of it. <clears throat> she was anorexic. She admitted to being bulimic, and there's pictures of her where she looks. She doesn't look yeah. very healthy. Um, yeah, she had another question. Yeah, another question for you, Steve. Is do you believe the Boston breaks method was used in her assassination? Boy, that's possible, isn't it? That's possible. Um, there was so much wrong with this vehicle. I don't think they had to do this. Um, it's any like I said, it's possible. I couldn't find any evidence of it, but it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, yeah, so the, but there was something wrong, didn't they have like the seatbelts were tampered with? Like there was evidence that the seatbelts got tampered with. Is that true? Well, the car was stolen and stripped, and uh, it was just put back together wrong. And of course, the French and the British are lying about this. They're saying the French was saying the speedometer was stuck at the equivalent of 121 miles an hour. The British are saying it was stuck at their equivalent of 140 miles an hour. Mercedes-Benz finally had to step in and say, look, no, after an accident, it goes back to zero. This car was stolen and stripped of all electronic control modules. I mean, the fuses were in the wrong spot. I mean, this thing was a death trap. Did that happen by accident? It was the only car in the motor pool, in the motor pool that came up, and the bellboy drove it up. Who the hell was this bellboy? This is not a secured person or a secured car. The seat belts weren't working right. Uh, you know, they Mercedes-Benz is probably one of the finest automobiles in the world. They stepped forward and said, we want to do a private um, investigation of this vehicle because it's not behaving properly. The front, no one would let them investigate the vehicle. They asked three times they were returned down at every turn. Um the only people who investigated this vehicle for these problems were people who were paid not to find anything by the British government. Right. And there's, I mean, they, they cleaned the crime scene or the scene of where the accident or assassination happened right away. Like that night, they're Absolutely. like, yeah, watching everything, took the car away. It should have been locked down for days as they got all the information, but nope. Oh my God. Yes. That's why they make crime scene tape. You get one chance to investigate a crime scene. Same thing with um, Elvis Presley. All right. He's dead. What are they doing? They sanitize the death scene. All right. Princess Diana is declared dead. They call in special equipment to sanitize the tunnel 
and they're dragging the 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 car away on a flatbed and all of the evidence that could have been investigated with it through the streets of Paris at two in the morning. What the hell is going on? Just like John F. Kennedy. Okay. He gets his brain blown out. They take him into Parkland. What is secret service doing? They've got a bucket and sponges and they're wiping out the car. They're wiping the blood splatter out of the car in a slain U S president. You can't make this up. You know, I mean, Marilyn Monroe, there's another one. You know, the, the, the police show up, the housekeeper's doing the laundry. Are you kidding me? You can't. And I say that, I mention these in the book, they're called Threads of Insanity. And I link them up through all of these mysterious quote-unquote murders. Uh, they were not, they were hits. Okay, these people were, uh, they just didn't die by accident. I mean, I guess they were murders, but they are high-profile hits. And all of these have commonalities that I link them up, link up in the book. Yeah, no, really, you did a great job. Very cogent. You laid it out rationally. You can follow on, get the background, which is also very important. Where's the best place to get the book, Steve? My book is available in ebook and audio book all the way around the world. It's available in Kindle. If you want a physical copy, you can go to my website, who murdered books. Dot com. If you want me on your show, fill out the form there. I'll be happy to do it. Physical books are going away. Um, I've got a handful left. I, if you want one, it's cheaper than Amazon if you want a physical book. Um, I will autograph them to anybody you want. And uh, I've got, I don't know, a couple dozen left. And when they're gone, they're gone. I'm not doing any more physical books. It's going to be digital from here on in. So go to whomurderedbooks.com. You can catch me on Facebook. You can catch me on Twitter. Um, I love to hear from people who read my stuff, so don't be afraid to reach out. Great. And that's, I'll put that, the link in the show notes, whomurderedbooks.com with your full name, Stephen Ubaney, U-B-A-N-E-Y. And again, this book was Who Murdered Diana, published May 2021. So Steve, thank you so much for your time. Hey, thanks. It's a pleasure being here. Okay, cool. Stay there.